Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Green Through. Here today with us, I am pleased to be joined by Wendy Hopgood and John Stewart, who happen to be the founders and directors of an NGO called Wild Tomorrow Fund. Simply put, Wild Tomorrow Fund provides uh, undersupplied natural reserves with the necessary equipment and supplies to um, fight the anti-poaching epidemic in the African continent. Additionally, I would like to say that they also provide um, and run educational programs to grow awareness surrounding biodiversity conservation. So that in itself is amazing. And I think it would be suitable to start with a little introduction regarding your backgrounds and sort of what would be interesting to explore what prompted you to, let's just say, switch what you were doing and uh, jump on this amazing journey of yours. Thanks, Eric. We're delighted to be talking to you today in your audience. Very excited to be here and thank you. Yeah, as you said, we, we have a, an interesting journey to where we are today. We both came from very different backgrounds. I was an executive creative director in advertising. And, and I was basically working on Wall Street or in, in the capital markets uh, in Tokyo and then in New York. And yeah, so we, we were never really thinking while we were in these careers, we were never really thinking of starting an NGO or right. helping with conservation. But there was always something inside us individually that was just, it was like a, an itch that you had to scratch. And that was, were we doing the right things in our life to, to satisfy us, but right. also to be, uh, um, responsible humans mm. and we both felt that we were not okay. so we started to volunteer and while we were in these jobs we started to volunteer for conservation organizations and that led us to saying you know what i think we could probably do this full time and it would make us happier and it feels mm. like the right thing to do right yeah, i think really about finding a purpose and creating making a difference and and for we were both animal lovers nature lovers and um for me, specifically, climate change was really this, this, I was aware of it as an existential threat to everything. And I felt that if we didn't do something, you know, then, yeah, the, the planet really was at risk. So Right. And I mean, first things for, first, congratulations. And uh, it, it takes a lot of guts, right, to sort of, let's just say, um, leave your previous post and go on a, on a new venture. So that in itself uh, deserves... Um, appraisal but what i wanted to ask you i think it's very interesting what you touched upon john is that what made you sort of what was the thought process so you went out there in i'd assume in africa you witnessed the you know existing conservation exercise of what sort of prompted you to think okay this is what's happening my outlook is different i can you know how can i provide a different angle with now what is well tomorrow fund you understand what i'm what i'm saying yeah uh you know when, when i was volunteering i was one of a small group and they're all fantastic people. They're all animal lovers. Right. But the, the, the monitors, the, the professionals that were in charge of us could see something different in me. And I think it was just my desire to learn. It was, I was like, but why this? But why that? What if you did this? And I caught myself doing it as well. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm really into this stuff. And <laughs> it, 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 I was enjoying it. And I was also angry at what I was learning. I was shocked. I was disgusted mm -hmm. like this this is dreadful how can these animals be at risk because you don't because the reserve can't afford new tires for its vehicle that's crazy they're 50 dollars. i'll give it to you now and it was this it was this uh 
this power I felt that maybe I could be something that could make change. And nothing would have happened without this person that I met over there, which, who was the, they call them monitors, the, the professional looking after us. Okay. And uh, he, he was fascinating. He was, he was a wealth of knowledge and he could see something in me and he kind of poked me and was like, you know, have you really, have you thought about maybe you seem to be interested in this stuff. You could do something here. So that was the journey that I went on. And I was like, you know what? Yes, I will. It's easy to feel really helpless about the really big challenges facing our planet. It could be climate change, which is so huge. You feel like the drop in the ocean and that your difference won't matter. And like elephant poaching, you know, um, the, what was the stat? 100,000 killed a year. Now it's wow. about 30,000, but the population's decreased. You know, elephants were just listed endangered and critically endangered in Africa. I think, gosh, how can I help? But then when you're on the ground and you see how practically you could help, that it, you do know that your donation, like, or your contribution, $50 for a pair of ranger boots or for a tire for a patrol vehicle, it actually makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And in a way, it was shocking to sort of be on the ground and see, this was in South Africa and, 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 and visiting government reserves and, and speaking with their leadership and their head rangers, that it was really truly basic things they were missing and things right. that weren't that expensive. And you sort of wonder how was the help not getting to them? Mm. And there was truly, there was a gap that we could help fill. So it was knowing that there was really a gap we could fill in the beginning. Yeah. Right. And I think you touched upon something very sort of interesting that I've experienced myself, uh, at least for like my generation and younger. I think the finger pointing game is not really constructive because A, we don't have the time and B, really doesn't lead you anywhere. But, you know, there's this phenomenon of ecophobia, right? There is just so much going on. It's overwhelming. It's, uh, let's just say, not really, it's disheartening in a way because it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not promising. But it's beautiful that you're you've found let's just say your way of tackling something it's maybe not necessarily the whole sort of conservation exercise on a global scale but i wanted to ask you what would you recommend let's just say to a younger person sort of saying not to feel disincentivized but also just to you know participate and be part of something bigger even if it's not necessarily the whole pie mm. yeah i think first of all this this uh it's 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 not the best time to uh, be an animal lover, to be a nature lover, mm. um, but it's the most powerful time probably. And you've got to first of all, you've got to protect yourself as a person. You if you take it all in and you take it all on, it's just more and more weight. Right. Right. Ecological grief, you know. Yeah. Really, it's hard. Yeah. So what I would suggest is. Uh, it's a little bit like a doctor. If a doctor felt the pain of every patient, he would not be able to help anybody. So I think what you've got to do is you've got to say, look, I'm not, I'm, I can't change the world. I'm just one person, but I can pick something that I'm most interested in and I'll try there in that little area. Mm. And then you'll be surprised at how many people you touch by doing that. I think Jane Goodall says it actually, to think globally, act locally. That's amazing. You know, and if everybody did that, the world would be... We wouldn't be in this predicament, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think to add to that, I would say to volunteer, it's that idea of acting locally. You know, maybe you can't right now go and 
come with us and volunteer in South Africa, mm. but you can volunteer locally. And, and something in our journey, we started out helping, you know, equip rangers and anti-poaching and then uh, like evolved and grew as an, an organization. And our, we, our focus is pretty, is really on rewilding. And what does that mean? And part of it is, is, is restoring the entire ecosystem, but right. also restoring our connection with nature. So restoring people's kind of heart and, and, and taking more of an ecocentric view where we are a part of nature. Right. And it's very hopeful. So I think that that helps too, to be involved in something that's hopeful, that's creating positive change that, you know, overwhelmed with all the ecological grief and feeling of helplessness. Right. So it really, I think, helps empower people to see that they can make a difference. And John and I could never have imagined when we started <laughs> World War Fund in 2015, <laughs> like really just to help other rangers and reserves that we would then now have uh, you know, saved land and restored land and reintroduced giraffe and like actually Amazing. created a nature reserve. I mean, it's, we would never have thought that was possible. That's outstanding. Honestly, I'm in awe of uh, all the, because it's, it's very contagious work, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's very inspiring. But I think it'll be interesting for the listeners and A, for myself to find out because I think you're a rare breed in terms of you've seen both sides of the fence, right? You've seen the corporate side of things, you, within advertising, John, and Wendy within uh, finance slash Wall Street. I wanted to ask you, because I've just finished, for example, a course on, on you know, um, sustainability with Cambridge. And I, what, what I've noticed is that when you sit at the table with this kind of people or different, so let's just say similar minds, you already know what the common denominator is, which is like, I'm trying to help, right? In a constructive way. Have you found this? Like, what was the biggest, uh, let's just say, difference between what you were previously doing and what you're doing now in terms of people and just as a culture to help and collaborate with one another? It, yes, the, the, the emotions that we've felt through people being generous mm. cannot be found, I don't think, in the corporate world. Right. Uh, it is a lovely feeling knowing that whatever you are doing every day, what we do every day is going to something that can make a difference. I, I, one of the things I disliked about advertising is I could work for a month on a project and then at a whim, the client changes their mind and I still get paid. <laughs> but what did I just do? You know, mm -hmm. and it, it was this feeling of, of waste, waste of everything, waste of my time, waste of money, waste of energy. Um, we don't feel it with what we're doing and being around people that help us mm -hmm. and want to help is something I don't think you can find in corporate life. Yeah, I remember it was hard initially sort of asking for donations because it felt like we were asking for money from family and friends. I mean, we were, but getting comfortable with that idea and that we're asking on behalf of wildlife, not on behalf of ourselves who, you know, had good careers and when we started had savings, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it, being surrounded by kind people. I mean, people in the corporate world, you know, one, they're earning great salaries. So they do have the capacity to make Undoubtedly. Too yeah. by donating. And I've thought about that before, you know, on Wall Street, they call it the golden handcuffs, right? You, you're paid very well. 
So it's very difficult to leave. And for most people, you can't leave. So then I would say, you know, they've got commitments and mortgages and families and kids to pay for. We had more freedom than that. So then I would say, if you really want to make a difference, you know, you don't have to quit your job and, and or be a, you know, a conservationist in the field with a clipboard. I like to say that um, some of the most helpful people in our lives lives revolving around the charity is like you know an accountant who who works full-time as an accountant but will I can call and, and ask for help or yeah. you know like um a friend in, in the west coast was uh, worked for Disney doing all the design of the parks and right. he would create art we have a lot of artists who've created um art for us across the years to to auction off and so there's a lot of ways you can save nature without necessarily if yes you don't so have I would to quit say, your jobs help us <laughs> we can Fair be enough. your channel i think there's a lot of people out there who desire who want to do it and they're not ready to make the leap it's a big leap so then in the meantime they can come volunteer or donate or use their talents creatively to help right support conservation i think that's also a very constructive outlook as opposed to just saying you should do this or you should do that because i don't think you know that i think stimulates a powerless um, culture and context as opposed to you know you can do this so you know if you want you can right it's more stimulating from that point of view and um, I wanted to ask you just briefly would you be able to summarize you know the targeted approach that Wild Tomorrow Fund has and sort of place it geographically more or less where you are or you know are you sponsoring multiple reserves it'll be interesting to find out sure uh, so our sort of region of focus is southern africa and we have our team on the ground in kwazulu natal south africa which is on the northeast coast of okay. south africa so right close to the border of south africa and mozambique it's a okay. beautiful corner of the world called which is sort of nicknamed south africa's elephant coast okay because there's a lot of um, wildlife areas there and um, incredible elephant populations historically and those elephants used to migrate up the coast which is okay. in between mozambique and um, south africa so it's the elephant coast um, and that's where our region of focus is in northeastern kwazulu natal south africa so we have reserve partners both private and government reserves so government reserves are kind of familiar to everyone they're you know the, the state national parks equivalent for South Africa. They are in some ways the most needy. They have very small budgets that keep right. being cut. At, you know, they're in charge of protecting incredible biodiversity. Um, and then in South Africa, there's private reserves, which is amazing. You know, a lot of ecotourism is sort of built around um, okay. tourism, really. Um, but it saved a lot of natural areas and, you know, where people, where local international tourists would come stay to lodge and you know see wildlife on safari and they're the private reserve but you know they also need help they aren't <laughs> it's it's a lot of work to, and and kind of money to keep wildlife safe especially rhinos right now um so they we also we partner with both state like government and private reserves and then we have our own reserve now which is super exciting outstanding um, i would love to hear more about that yeah, that's land that was saved. We call it an emergency. There was a pineapple farmer going to buy this land and, and totally destroy it. And, you know, we were asking, we were at that stage still just focused on equipment, but we knew habitat loss was the big issue. Just seemed too big, you know, and then this emergency happened and we had to, we really wanted to step in. And right. so we, um, 
worked to save the land and, and that's a long story but I mean we're really proud of being able to do it and also move people mostly here in New York and in California to to donate to help save land and it's very um tangible you know it's something that doesn't just go away it's permanent and um that's where it became even more hopeful for us to save land and restore it and rewild it um and yeah so we have our own reserve now that's a corridor that will connect these two reserves big big reserves together one is private on one side government on the other the government one is also a unesco world heritage wetland and Amazing. so a place of international significance and the idea of pineapple farmers right you know nothing wrong with pineapple farming but nothing not right on the border of a world heritage wetland yeah where, absolutely you know, so it was really important to save and um yeah and it, it changed our trajectory because we were raising $50 at a time and it felt awesome. Right. Uh, but that, that, that would run out quite quickly. The favors that people were doing us would start to run out and it was friends and family. So I, that, that is perhaps the biggest challenge of charities. How do you go? How do you cross that divide between starting and yeah. and people saying yeah i'll support you i'll support you perhaps more because of you than right. the cause although you're hoping that everything you're saying is 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 getting through but how do you how do you leave the reliance on friends and family and get to strangers right and that challenge i don't know what would have happened to us if we hadn't had this land Project. emergency where we right. needed to raise a million dollars we probably I don't know. I don't know if we could have continued making the same impact, but it forced us to say, all right, if we're going to raise a million dollars, we're going to have to meet some different kinds of people. And we used all the favors we could to get to those and it changed us. And now we were, we, I think we stepped up to the challenge. We were now able to um, organize ourselves with a board and um, be able to, spend time talking to these different types of people absolutely uh, but it changed us and and, and it, it was great yeah. i mean we have donors who helps the land purchase you know from twenty dollars up to a hundred thousand dollars right i mean it is we're really proud of it being a grassroots effort of people from around the world we've had people in switzerland peter in switzerland right mm. and and the us australia other countries who've contributed to the stream and vision an emergency, uh, right. you know, far away in South Africa. Mm. Amazing, congratulations. And how sort of did it come about? How did you, it, was it because you were already involved with the two sort of, I wouldn't say adjacent, but the, the two natural reserves and you found this corridor? Like how did it sort of, I wouldn't say fall up on your lap because it doesn't because you're, you're present there locally, but it would be interesting to sort of, you know, because timing wise was pretty, pretty, pretty um, spot on, right, for you guys? It was, well, it was really our co-founder who's South African who worked at government reserves and, you know, knew a lot of people in the region. And so when this piece of land was up for sale, the person who was managing it reached out and was like, please need someone to help, mm. like, just come see it. You know, so it was because we were already working right there in that region. And yes, our one of the neighboring properties we worked closely with. And um, so that was how it came on our radar. And, and yeah then we went to see it i think that <laughs> we were unsure about if we could take on that level of gosh fundraising and responsibility and commitment and but after seeing it stepping foot there understanding 
kind of the what was at threat it was right. sort of something we had to do and yeah we, mm. our first campaign was called save harry right the okay because there were hippos in the river you know that idea that the the land for these amazing animals was going to be totally destroyed was heartbreaking so that you know motivate i guess that emotional connection motivates you to try really hard to 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 change the situation and um <laughs> In terms of, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know, maybe if this is too personal as a question, but in terms of just logistical wise, because if you own that piece of land, right, will you then just sort of use as your own land and just sort of provide as a free bridge between the, for the species to come across, for it to cross between the two, two parks, or will your intervention be different from that point of view, since it's something that you're not necessarily helping, you know, an existing, um, natural conservation exercise now you have the opportunity to you know run your run your own show from that point of view mm. yeah we because we are a non-profit first of all it means that we could never sell the land right for profit which is awesome uh it's Absolutely. great to hear that the only people we could sell it to or give it to is another ngo okay. that is going to continue the mission um also it's now protected um legally and it's called the South Africa's Biodiversity Stewardship Program. Okay. And that has now protected the land from anybody for the next hundred years wow. doing anything but conservation on it. Mm. So it's a bit like when you go to uh, a national park in your country, that is legally protected. You, you know, you couldn't get a politician or somebody start saying, you know, mm. I think there might be some gold under this, this mountain. Let's see what we can find. We went through this process so people uh, cannot touch it. Um, Congratulations. Terms, Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but that's an amazing achievement. That just happened last month. It's like big news. Yeah, we're really, it's a big milestone for the reserve and for the project and the vision of the corridor. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's it's just, we, we uh, have symbolically given it to the wildlife. We'll, we'll take care of it for them if they need help. We'll, we'll keep them say, as safe as possible, but it's theirs, you know. Right. And for the people too, you know, it's saving it, saving land benefits, not just wildlife, but the community. Of course, and absolutely. One side of, of our reserve, if you imagine it as, a, as like this long corridor on the west side is across the river is a community that we work with closely. And, you know, for water security, for climate change adaptation, you know for health of local people you know they fish in the river they collect reeds so it, it it protecting nature's infrastructure is equally important for people as well as wildlife so we hope we're creating that legacy for wildlife and people as well absolutely and um and i want to ask you because from my perspective what caught my eye regarding let's just say your unique approach was that you weren't just there to operate locally. What you were there to do is to repurchase the land. Um, let's just say, look for predatory shrubs or you know whatever um, kind of vegetation or species that was not meant to be there and then rewild it. So that thorough, let's just say, ecological due diligence is, um, is the only way to go about it in the right way, right? In, to, in terms of long-term intervention. What do you think? Yeah, the... the in invasive alien plants, meaning plants that were not naturally uh, created on right. that land, are everywhere. 
um, every, the around the world, every country. I mean, we live in New York City, down our street, there's beautiful trees, but those trees are from Asia. They're mm -hmm. from, and we don't really think about it. Um, most of the time, those, those invasive plants, the plants that were not naturally created there, um, they'll perhaps die out in a, in their in, if they were to seed naturally, right. or they would just, you know, they would just be another species. Sometimes though, there are invasive plants that take hold and dominate all of the natural mm -hmm. species to the point where the natural plant species can no longer exist. So if you're thinking what we were doing, we're rewilding, we're, we're returning land to its natural state. Right. That can't happen if the vegetation isn't also in its natural state. So what we found on our reserve is there were two species that are called chromalina and pantheria, pantherium. Um, okay. My ecologist went with the, with, will kill me for not remembering. Um, but they were taking away the food source mm -hmm. that would be needed if we were to reintroduce animals. Right. So we had yeah. to first get rid of that so Makes the grass sense. could return. Like the zebra or the wildebeest, you know, they need to eat the more open grasslands and those invasive alien plants kind of take over where that grass would otherwise be. So it reduces the ability of the land to be home to wildlife and native species. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's big. So it's really ecological restoration and thinking about the entire ecosystem rather than sort of one species alone. So in a way, you know, rewilding means different things, but one thing it does mean is, is thinking about um, more of an e ecosystem approach to to restoration. And it sounds very similar to the lilies world analogy, right? Where you have the, the red and white lilies and then you add, which is the what can I say, the, the, the simplifying means of, you know, explaining the natural world. And then you add um, humans to the mix, which would be, in your case, the predatory shrubs. And, you know, there's no equilibrium anymore. So um, very interesting from that point of view. And I want to ask you, in that sort of, let's just focus on that stretch of land that you guys have had the opportunity to purchase or are in the process of, uh, congratulations, is uh, what sort of animals can you find there, species? Because as you said, it's very rich in local um local species so it'll be um i think interesting to know well we just updated our species list which i always find incredibly exciting just to think okay. about the life is there and what is you know in on africa scale a relatively small piece of land it's 3200 acres which is about okay. over 1200 hectares um our species list went up to i think over a thousand species that we've counted so far i think over oh 1240 species confirmed wow from mammals to plants to uh, insects, insects and, yeah. you know, the list could be endless, but um, <laughs> of those that we have kind of looked at, uh, so it's like 52 mammals, 21 different frogs, over 402 birds, what? 162 flowers, 44 reptiles, and like, it's incredible. I mean, the land is located in what's called a global biodiversity hotspot, so there's only there's 36 places on our planet that are these hotspots for biodiversity. So right. it's so dense in, in, in life. And of all those, those 1,240 species we've confirmed so far, 46 are threatened. Wow. So, you know, just by saving this relatively small patch of land, we're, we're saving habitat for 46 threatened species, you know, including 
leopards and like all the really charismatic ones that people mm. love leopard and um you know when the corridor fences come down so the wildlife from the other reserve can come in there's african elephants black rhinoceros who are critically endangered cheetah and we're really proud we've got this little right now we have um habitat for a very endangered little antelope called the sunni for example which okay. is I say a uh, chihuahua sized deer, you know, that's as big what? as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> Super cute, you know, and probably something most people have never heard of. It's very right. elusive. It's, it hides in the dense forest, a special type of forest called the dry sand forest, which is also incredibly threatened uh, type of forest. So yeah, it's um, the life that's there. Also, I get a kick out of there's 23 you know that we've found so far there'll be more 23 mantis species you know wow. they're so alien the praying mantis but 23 different ones and some of them are really crazy looking um <laughs> one common name is the bird poop mantis so it literally looks like bird poo that's its camouflage another one is the lichen mantis it literally looks like lichen on a stick it's crazy um and really amazing to see nature's diversity and um, what's being protected on this land Amazing. Right. And I wanted to ask you, I think one of the concluding points before we open up to the questions from the public, um, what sort of ever since inception, right, when you sort of conceived the idea and the, let's just say in the execution stage, did the education and involvement of the local communities always have always hold a special place in your, let's just say, I wouldn't necessarily call it business plan, but let's just say strategy in terms of, you know, because you're obviously having, um, a huge impact there but i think it will be short-lived if you're not uh, teaching the local uh, people which know more than us ultimately right yeah, yeah. It, on the one hand what we're doing is critical it has to happen if there is going to be any future of of strong biodiversity it has to happen now on the other hand it could look like a really luxurious kind of you know passion project right why would why would we be doing this when people are struggling so we were always aware that there there are two sides to how you could look at it um we 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 are based in an area of extreme poverty and uh for us to build a reserve where we're saying you can't come in here because that they there's dangerous animals. Um, didn't feel right. They should also benefit from what we're doing. Absolutely. So from the very beginning, we said, okay, let's let's help where we can, mm -hmm. but let's not assume that we know what they need. Right. Uh, let's find somebody that can guide us. Um, their, their, their cultures, their, their, their way of life is very different to ours and we would be foolish to think that we would know what they need. So uh, we, we very quickly partnered with an organization that had been working with the community for a long while. They'd, be, they'd built schools and mm -hmm. health care facilities and food programs. And we said, okay, if, we, if we're able to help and we want to help, we want to be good neighbors to the, to, to the people, what do we do? And they guided us towards the work that we do today with the community. That's very powerful. And I think, you know, and you, you referenced it, Eric, that for the long-term success of conservation, 
the community has to have buy-in and they have to support it. I mean, they are the ultimate stewards of the land, you know, in the future. We thought it was very important. The land is owned by the South African charity. We have Wild Tomorrow Fund South Africa as an entity. So the land is owned in South Africa by South Africans, really. Um, mm. And so what's really exciting is to is the creation of jobs. You could call it green jobs or jobs in conservation. We're super proud of what we've been able to do. We employ now nine rangers full time, uh, plus three other management staff. Um, we're so proud of our rangers. They were, except with the exception of one who's a very experienced ranger, they were all kind of unqualified. They were farm laborers or didn't have jobs, young men from the community. And now they're rangers. They're very proud, you know, with their uniforms and boots and this job and, and learning about nature. The other the sort of sad part in South Africa, it is, and I'm sure this will happen across Africa, but fenced reserves. So, mm. you know, um, that's the model in South Africa. So often people living in the community just next door have never seen an elephant or never seen a rhino. So it's um, really part of our mission to, we're a public charity. So open up our, our reserve to the public and to, to involve community people where we can. And the other program we're super proud of is our Green Mumbas team. Okay. So we had to do this restoration work we talked about, the alien plants, and it's, it's really hard work to remove it. And um, actually, initially, our neighbors said, you've got to use chemicals, and that's how you do it. And um, then we uh, heard about this other idea, which is using, employing women to do the work. And so we created this team of 14 women, with, like speaking with and working with the, the tribal leaders, the right. community leaders. Um, and they come and um, do this hard work and that's created employment for them for 14 women. Some of them have up to 10 dependents. You know, they got a official certificate in how to be a herbicide applicator. That was the first kind of educational qualification ever. Um, also with their manual work, which is hard, um, it uses 95% less chemicals than chemical control, which Absolutely. is- Use. So it was also it was it was such a win-win. It's great for the environment. We're achieving our restoration goals. It's it's just hard work. Takes time to 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 control alien plants and get them to get rid of the infestation and creating employment. And um, so that's a really powerful program. And we we also um, you know in COVID where these were communities that were already in poverty and then COVID hit and people lost jobs and it kind of hit them really hard. So we did a lot of food emergency hunger relief last year for right. 12, I think. So um, I think those activities and that support for the community is noticed and, you know, that will bring support for our project. And um, yeah, we're, if it wasn't for COVID, we also, um, want to bring the kids on the reserve and meet the rangers and have the rangers tell them about what they do. And something we do that's different to most other reserves in the region is we want our rangers to be exposed to conservation even outside of our reserve. Okay. So we okay. took our rangers to an elephant um, ex like collaring exercise at a neighboring reserve, private reserve we work with. And one of the rangers got in the helicopter, you know, for <laughs> flying but what was so cool about it is they all have phones you know so they're taking photos and sharing it with their friends and family they touched an elephant that was you know tranquilized and I mean, one of the rangers his new facebook profile is in the helicopter <laughs> so it's a really positive experience that 
but they're excited about and they're telling their friends and family why wildlife's important and how cool wildlife is and how you know what their job is like so I think that has sort of this un immeasurable benefit that um, just grows and the green mumbas too you know they're really proud of their jobs the name is like a very powerful snake and you mm. know there's stories of them um I mean it would be scary right to come across a leopard sleeping in the bushes when you're about to whack the bushes with a absolutely <laughs> and big snakes you know they always call our reserve manager um if they run into a big snake and that's it the day done for the day like that's it you know kind of I would be the same I'm like okay I can't handle any more big snakes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so I'm sure they're telling community about it too and um you know they're proud they're really proud of the work they're doing and they're in the local paper all those things and international news so i think we're really proud of our you know our rangers and green mumbas and hope to do more of that work absolutely and i think you've i would say exhaustively answered the first question from the public well i would uh, probably like to take it a step further which was sorry the question was about sort of how do you let's just say integrate the skills of the of the local community and you know in the long term sort of involve them with um, you know the website presence and stuff like that I wanted to ask you it sounds very much like you want to avoid the siloing of um, the skills that they will develop right because you don't know because let's be honest that piece of land just fell on your I want to say fell on your lap but you know the you you let's just say you roll with the punches um yes. do you do you think that having what can I say, a local presence with, you know, versatile, flexible and elastic skills that will, you know, better equip you to deal with, you know, the unpredictability of climate change going forward, regardless of whatever impact it might have on your uh, habitat, right? Yeah, we, it, we, we've always been quite uh, creative. creative. We, we didn't find our feet for, you know, as we said, we pivoted quite quickly right. from helping reserves we still do that but it's not our driving mission to to habitat protection and that could change again i don't think it will um but it could and to stay elastic as you said to not say uh stake in the ground this is what we do and you've got to do this job and you've got to do that job we uh, we just saying the other day we want our rangers to get so skilled that they have to leave they have get to go a, get a different job, job you know? <laughs> um we want that would be a win for us if, absolutely if our general manager says you know what? i think i've got an idea how about we create x you know a b program or right um and as long as it's sound conservation absolutely let's talk about it so yeah we we want everybody mm -hmm. to stay flexible i think it's a quite a modern way to look at um because nowadays you know with our our parents we're older than you but our parents <laughs> they, they 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 got a job in a company and they stayed in that job um we've changed Absolutely. once completely but i think people will continue to do that they'll mm -hmm. say you know i tried this for a while i'm gonna do this so we want our company to feel that we can change with the the, the changing times as well very vibrant um, yeah, and I think, you know, part of the question from the public was about how do you make the reserves or the work you're doing sort of right. sustainable, which is a great question. And, you know, with the Green Mumbas, for example, um, 
at a certain point, our major restoration work will be done and we want to make sure they can continue. Right. And it's been really interesting. There was a lot of doubt initially when they first came to our land and did the work that they did and skepticism. And now we have neighboring reserves asking if they can hire the green mumbas. And that's awesome because what we want them to be able to do is to pitch their work other places because we actually can't, we won't have enough work for them at one point which is a great thing absolutely but um, we want it to be sustainable so sort of working with them on how to kind of pitch their work and how to negotiate um you know this region 25 other is shocking 25 percent of kids don't even go to school at all you know and the um, so education is a huge um there's a lot of work to be done yeah and a lot of you know adults have not had that opportunity so sort of working with them to um help them practice they have to pitch their work to us so when we have an area of a reserve (laughs) reserve that's got like alien plants they have to go out and estimate how much work it will be how many days it will, will take and then um tell us what the price will be so that's really getting them ready to do the same thing at other reserves and then actually it incentivizes them if they say it's going to take us 12 days like so they pitch it as a project and then if they get done early they're still paid for the full thing so it's sort of this interesting um dynamic skill and then in terms of our reserve uh we want it to be self-sustaining and um actually we could we we're pretty confident we can do that with volunteer trips so having volunteers and local south africans come um and visit the reserve and help with conservation and then that revenue will um support the ongoing operational costs which is really once the major work is done it's like the rangers and the vehicles and you know fixing fencing and <laughs> it's not too right. bad it's not too yeah. bad so um i think that's really exciting i you know idea to to have a self like i have a self-sustaining reserve and uh, as a concluding point um which i'm quite intrigued to hear your answer to this from the second question for the public goes from your I wouldn't say globally, but from your humble experience and let's just say testimony of what you've seen in uh, within sustainable development in South Africa, do you think that it will be ever likely to witness an end to poaching? And maybe if you can make this species specific, depending on your humble experience, but it'll be, because I've heard from another person that I spoke to that there was um, a decrease in the, in the, in the dealings of ivory due to COVID, but then as soon as the restrictions were sort of eased, then it is sort of picked up again. So it's, um, it's, it's sounds like it's never ending, but I would like to hear your answer to that. Yeah. I, well, well, when, when one says poaching, when somebody says poaching, uh, that, that first needs to be broken down a little bit because there is a lot of poaching. That's what we call bushmeat poaching okay. in our area. And that is where people get into our reserve and they'll set snares and they'll hopefully catch an animal. They're doing that to survive. Okay. They're perhaps doing it to make make a little bit of money. Um, That I don't think will ever stop until, but that's okay. That's not going to. That's uh, manageable, let's say. Yes. Yeah. there could be a wild dog or something that is 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 critically critically threatened that gets caught in that, and that's a, that's an issue. Um, I think when when so that's that's one kind of poaching. The other poaching is of ivory from elephants and horn from rhinos. And is that ever going to stop? 
we we would like to think so. I think we have to think so. Um, right. It's actually you could you could even look at it as like you look at fashions. Mm. Um, there's no need for people to have items made of ivory. There's no need for people to have tables made of exotic woods. That's just fashion of, mm. of rich people. So that could actually stop. Mm. Um, that could actually stop quite quickly if uh, we can change that. And there's been historic cases where that has, where, mm-hmm. where that has happened. Um, rhinos, is they their their horn is used for medicine and that has been a practice that has been <clears throat> been going on for for centuries okay we don't, we don't know what the future is of whether people will change their minds mm-hmm. hopefully the younger generations will but th- it is deeply deeply ingrained in their medicinal culture um okay. but it has it it was kind of just okay and then mm-hmm. suddenly other countries decided that they thought it was going to help them medicinally and that well that's it. where i think the hope is because i'll give an example vietnam is more of a new market for rhino horn and i think they're they drove you know there wasn't really rhino poaching in south africa until 2013 there were 13 rhinos poached in 2013 it kind of escalated so that's where okay. the, that kind of demand uh was created um and there's a lot of rumors or sort of ideas of why and how this happened in vietnam it's a rising economy richer people wanting to show off status so actually their use of rhino horn in vietnam is is partly medicine but it's mostly status right um so what gives me hope about it is it's kind of a new thing there okay it's a new fad it's a new way of showing off so um and and people have done surveys of rhino horn users in Vietnam and asked them why they do it and like come up with hard stats that it is mostly a status issue. They've come up with new reasons you should take rhino horn that are not from traditional Chinese medicine. You know, it's good for a wow. hangover. That is not a thousand year old tradition. So <laughs> what, what gives me hope about that situation is that it happened recently, okay. 2013. So if young people, um, can tell their parents and grandparents and you know i think as quickly as it happened hopefully it can be undone it's not hopeless i mean we're all optimists um but absolutely i think the issue is do rhinos have time for those customs and those fads and those fashions to change and that's where i think we're holding back the war the wave just holding um back the onslaught and hoping that minds and attitudes can change in time right. for rhinos to survive you know they've had other rhino poaching crises like uh driven for different reasons and fashionable reasons from the middle east you know in the 60s and that was changed and rhinos had a reprieve and everything was fine and then this new right use happens right so, yeah i think there's hope and i think it has to come from within um asian southeast asian countries china china's making real change the ivory laws for example and when china banned domestic ivory use that's when the price of ivory went down a lot okay. so then that reduces the poaching. right it's a supply and demand right at the end of the day so so yeah i think there's hope it's just going to take time and so in the meantime we just got to do all we can to protect absolutely them. absolutely and i think that's a, a great sort of promising and inspiring point to end it on and uh, always sort of uh, see the glass half full and just keep pouring water right and oh, yes. um, guys, I wanted to thank you for your time and obviously appreciate all the work you're doing and uh, 
you know excited to witness what you're you stand to do next. Thank, Thank you, you very so much, much, Eric, for having me.